sound does a podcast make when no one is listening? If you're hearing this now, then I'm not talking to you. You are one who has helped to sustain me in this project. I'm talking to all those who I wish I had the means to get through to, to make contact with. Well, there's the rub. If they could hear me, then they wouldn't be the ones I'm talking to. Never mind. I appreciate you for listening, and I hope you have gone back and heard my thoughts from the beginning. I find that I elaborate less now as I compose these essays on details that I've discussed on previous occasions. The amount of content now contained in the podcast, if rehashed in completion every time I make reference to it, would disallow me from making any further progress. I would be like a pack of wolves, only laying claim to the territory I can patrol. So of necessity, I keep pressing outward into the frontiers of what I know, or think I know, or wish to know better. I'm a lone wolf. How romantic. I am grateful for the listeners I have, but I admit that I lament the audience I do not. The frustration is that I don't know what to do about it. I'm hoping in time that someone will help me with that. In the meantime, I've got nothing to lose, and plenty to gain by proceeding, if for no other reason than to keep my mind engaged with matters of deep importance. In the last episode, I carried out an analysis of objects as systems in order to consider what is meant by dispositions. According to the temporally integrated causality landscape framework, consciousness is emergent from a large system across the thalamocortex. Here, I am interested to take the analysis of the fundamentals of material systems in order to see if we can establish a place for consciousness within a physical framework of systems. In principle, we should be able to establish something like a phylogeny for physical systems and their properties, within which to distinguish those exhibiting consciousness from those that do not. My bias is that consciousness is a special case among systemic activities in the universe rather than a normal, fundamental feature, but I could be wrong. Previously, I considered three different objects of increasing complexity, a rock, a piece of furniture, and a car. These material structures can be characterized as systems, which is what I did. But that may be a bit simplistic. We must consider interrelated systems when we look at what might be regarded as systems of systems, such as the example of the car. A car is more than one system. The engine and drivetrain seem to operate as a common system, but it's difficult to make the case that the brake system or the stereo are part of it. With the hope of coming to some new insights, I will focus today on the human organism and its brain. In physiology, we often speak of organ systems. The levels of analysis might be individual cells, then individual tissues composed of cells, then individual organs composed of tissues, then individual systems, say the digestive system or the nervous system, composed of organs. Of course, we can go beyond this in both directions, up and down. Going down, we can speak of individual organelles, like the cell membrane, the Golgi apparatus, or the nucleus, composed of molecules. Further down, we have the individual molecules, proteins, messenger RNA, and so on, composed of atoms. And the individual atoms, a lot of carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and all the rest, are composed of subatomic particles. On the upper end of the levels, we can speak of individual organisms, composed of organ systems. We can go up to the level of the individual population, composed of organisms. And further, this is nested within an ecosystem, composed of different populations. Clearly, there are systems nested within systems nested within systems. Notice that even an atom is a system, not really an object at all. 
Do you think that we could replace our basic model for thinking about the physical universe from considerations of matter to considerations of systems? It's worth remembering Philip Goff's criticism of physics as a study of reality. In his book, Galileo's Error, Goff argued in favor of panpsychism and posited consciousness as a fundamental property of matter. He said, quote, there is a strong case that panpsychism is the simplest theory consistent with what we directly know about the nature of matter. Eddington's starting point is as follows. One, physical science tells us absolutely nothing about the intrinsic nature of matter. And two, the only thing we know about the intrinsic nature of matter is that some of it, i.e. the matter inside of brains, has an intrinsic nature made up of forms of consciousness. It is hard to really absorb these two facts, as they are diametrically opposed to the way our culture thinks about science, but if we manage to do so, it becomes apparent that the simplest hypothesis concerning the intrinsic nature of matter outside of brains is that it is continuous with the intrinsic nature of matter inside of brains, in the sense that both inside and outside of brains, matter has an intrinsic nature made up of forms of consciousness." Unquote. So according to Goff, and I think he makes a good argument for this in his book, Physics is ultimately unequipped to explain the fundamental nature of matter. Maybe so, but what about systems of matter? It seems to me that physics is in the business of explaining systems of matter. In fact, we have learned from physics about the systemic qualities that compose matter, the atoms. We have learned about electrons and protons, for example. But aren't we in fact inferring the existence of these particles from data about how systems work? Maybe we aren't studying matter at all, but rather the properties of material systems. Systems have properties, as we've been discussing. Galileo claimed that physical objects have nothing more than size, shape, location, and motion. But I have argued that objects are a class of physical systems. Not all systems are objects, but all objects are systems. An atom is a system, as I have observed, but it isn't an object. However, you can't make an object without atoms. I think that Galileo's features refer to emergent properties that arise at the macro scale. I'm not even sure that it makes sense to say that an atom has size. It has an effect size. When its electron cloud approaches another electron cloud, they have an effect upon one another. Continuing my thoughts on physiological levels, what happens as we change our level of analysis? Starting from the bottom, once we get the basic elements in place, we find that they are happiest and most plentiful in the form of very small, simple molecules. Hydrogen is found in water molecules and hydrogen gas, H2. Carbon is mostly in CO2 and methane and so on. Oxygen is in water and oxygen gas, O2. I imagine that most atoms of these elements exist in the universe in little molecules like these. Already, these gases and liquids have distinct properties that are emergent from the underlying elements. What I mean by emergence is those properties which cannot be further reduced. Water has surface tension and other hydrostatic properties. In its frozen form, it has the strange property of being less dense than it is as a liquid. These are not characteristics of hydrogen or oxygen that have simply added together to form the total properties of water. They are new properties of the H2O molecule. Simple common chemicals like these have occasion to form larger molecules. I won't speculate too much here about the primordial Earth. Life is ever-present here on Earth in our era, and cells of various types contain enzymes that serve to facilitate chemical reactions, and thereby living things manufacture all manner of handy molecules, most of them much, much larger and more complex than things like nitrogen gas and CO2. Each of these molecules is a system, and some of the larger ones could even be characterized as objects if we chose to view them that way. 
proteins and phospholipids and DNA molecules can be massive. As we change levels to that of cells and their organelles, we begin to truly have systems of systems. At each truly distinct level, it appears to me that we have something akin to emergence, which is to say, properties that are more than the sum of their component properties. This is even true if we advance all the way up to population level properties. Notice that a mob of a hundred people behaves differently than the sum total of one hundred different individuals behaving. It becomes a kind of organism with capacities of its own. The appendages of this emergent mob are, of course, the individuals composing it, but they are influencing and being influenced by one another in unpredictable, real-time ways. Alright, so we have roughly established two things. First, the universe is composed of systems, which pluralize into systems of systems. Second, emergence is a feature of moving up scales of analysis. In this way, a system composed of smaller systems has properties which the smaller systems do not. With all of that in mind, let's talk about the brain. Neuroscientists study the brain at more than one level of analysis. There are those whose research is at a molecular level. The systems of interest here might be sodium channel proteins, or the transporter proteins which move glutamate or dopamine across the cell membrane. You will often see posters in their offices or on the wall of the lab depicting convoluted biochemical signaling pathways that occur inside of cells. There are those whose research is at a cellular level. How do neurons develop and form synapses? What are the different kinds of neurons and what are their firing properties? Then there are circuit types. These researchers investigate how neurons are wired together to accomplish cognitive tasks, for example. Like I said, systems of systems. At each level there are emergent properties. We know that neurons are excitable cells which communicate by means of action potential signals which trigger chemical transmission between cells. Communication is an emergent property. No individual protein or other molecule is a cell-to-cell -cell communicator. You don't have a bunch of little communicator molecules which add up to make a super communicator called a neuron. I don't think any special argument needs to be made in favor of consciousness as an emergent property of the brain. Certainly consciousness is special. I'm not saying that it isn't. I have made the argument that consciousness is the stuff of meaning and that a universe without it is necessarily meaningless. But I am saying that emergence of whole new properties occurs when systems assemble into greater systems. And I am saying that consciousness is an emergent property of an integrated neural structure. Take this with a grain of salt because it's not my area of expertise at all, but consider it. Science gets really fucking weird at the subatomic scale. We see unexpected properties which have resulted in the amazing and bizarre area of quantum physics. Might it be that the reason it seems so strange and counterintuitive is because everything we have ever experienced has been an emergent property of systems of such quantum phenomena. We have been in the world of the emergent property which cannot be reduced to the parts. We are now trying to study the parts, and we find that the parts themselves do not behave according to the rules of the emergent property. But they never would. It's like trying to find the properties of water in hydrogen and oxygen atoms. Those properties aren't there. Likewise, classical physics is the study of emergent properties of systems. It won't work anymore when we are looking at the systems broken apart into their constituents, so all bets are off. Let's return to the brain. A major component of the thalamocortex, and perhaps a few related structures, appears from the evidence to be the substrate of consciousness. But we all notice in our lives that consciousness is intermittent. Often we are conscious beings, and sometimes we cease altogether to be. 
Contrastive experiments which seek to determine the necessary and sufficient conditions for consciousness in the same subject are, from where I'm standing, the gold standard of human consciousness research. With that knowledge and the published thoughts of leading theoreticians, I developed the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL. The whole thing is built upon the concept of a system which has experiences of the subsystems that occur within it. In today's essay, I have talked about systems a lot. I have even called individual atom systems. Am I suggesting that systems in general are conscious of the subsystems that make them up? No. Why not? What is so unique about the brain's thalamocortical system that justifies setting it apart from other systems existing in nature? First of all, I characterized everyday objects as systems. I said in the previous episode that a rock and a living room sofa are objects, and therefore systems. There are properties that they have, which can be thought of as emergent with respect to their building blocks. They are arranged in a way that makes a difference. You could not sit down and stretch out comfortably on the random pile of wood and fabric from which the sofa was assembled, for example. This is the case even though all of the same material is present in the living room. A rock of a certain size might be thrown by a trebuchet into the battlement of a castle and cause some damage. The same rock ground into a fine powder prior to its employment for this purpose would be comparatively ineffective. These examples don't do much for the argument of emergent properties, but they make a small point in the right direction. What about a living cell, though? You could probably win an argument against an object like a rock being actually possessed of emergence. It's just a composite of minerals. It doesn't gain any difference in kind by being brought together into a common form. Its differences are only in degree. Fair enough. But something as complex and dynamic as a cell is most certainly a system, one that does things its constituents could not do. That's the miracle of life. The cell can reproduce to make copies of itself and thus continue and expand its projects into the future. Do I then suggest that a cell must be a conscious thing? No, I do not. Let's take the magic school bus for a spin and make a closer inspection. An animal cell, like a neuron or a cardiac cell, is a eukaryotic cell which is to say that it includes a nucleus, which has its own membrane surrounding it. There are other organelles, systems in their own right, positioned around inside the cell. DNA is transcribed into messenger RNA, which travels to ribosomes where proteins are translated. Proteins are the working folk of the cellular community. They serve all kinds of functions. There are also lipid signaling molecules and small molecules of various kinds, amino acids and carbohydrates and such. The flow of causality in there is a lot like an ecosystem. This molecule runs into the, that molecule and that other molecule, and they react such that the first one takes on a different form and floats away. Now that the new molecule runs into another one, which carries it somewhere, each little worker wanders around the cytoplasm or sits there on the plasma membrane or works inside of a mitochondrion. In sum, the cell carries out all kinds of functions, as you know from high school biology. But there is not integration of causality. It's like a community. I live in a certain neighborhood of a certain city. I drive to work at a certain place and carry out functions there. I drive to the store. I go for a jog. I prepare a meal. My meal preparation and my drive to the store are independent of my neighbor's meal preparation or her drive to the store. We may have the occasion for an interaction, such that one of us has a measure of temporary causality on the other, but we are not part of an integrated structure nor is much of the brain any different. Most of the brain's neurons are linked to a few other neurons in a feed-forward fashion. The network sits there doing its intrinsic biochemical thing. Neurons fire at some baseline level. Input comes to the network, which changes the firing inside the network, and then output signals exit the network. 
It returns to baseline activity until a new input arrives. That's a simplification, of course, but essentially what happens. The cerebellum has more neurons than the whole thalamocortical system, but they are isolated into little parallel networks, just like I am isolated from the rest of my city. A cell over here never makes any difference to a cell over there. They just live in a nearby neighborhood. What about the thalamocortical system? Well, some of it, namely the primary cortices like V1, are a lot like those parallel networks in the cerebellum. As far as causality goes, they have their own feed-forward paths from input to output. But much of the thalamocortex is organized differently, and I'm not the first person to note the importance of that difference. I learned about it from guys like Christoph Koch and Giulio Tononi and Marcello Massimini. There are times when the thalamocortex is highly integrated, when a sufficient stimulus in one part of this massive network spreads widely, almost globally through the whole system, and everywhere back again through feedback connections. Those are the very times in which we are conscious. During such times, we see and hear and feel and think. In such times, we exist. As I have observed to you before, I do not always exist. What I mean to say is that I am not present at all objective times, even as my body and my brain go on living. And in that sense, my personality and my memories, my dispositions to behavior are there throughout. But I cannot be my personality or my dispositions. I am that which comes and goes with the tides of thalamocortical integration. On a few occasions in the podcast, I have described the experiments which Massimini and Tononi carried out to distinguish what occurs in the brain during conscious versus non-conscious states. I exist by definition when I am conscious. For brevity's sake, I can reduce such a statement to I am. According to the TICL, consciousness is an emergent property of a very large integrated system comprising much of the thalamocortex. Therefore, I am a property which emerges from Jesse's brain. The, con the contents of consciousness are emergent from subsystems within that greater system. They are distinguishable within it. Thus, the things I see and hear and smell and feel are those subsystemic properties. They are the way they are because of how they relate to me and how they relate to one another. I often reason in dualistic terms, I'm sure you've noticed, but that isn't a fair characterization of my view. There is, in my view, only the physical. All that I am saying is that everything is ultimately contained within one system, the universe. Why then do I distinguish between myself and Jesse, between the conscious mind and the human body? I do this in order to precisely delineate the boundaries within which I, a conscious mind, exist. I am something emergent, like a genie. I am conjured when my container is properly stimulated. I cannot be identical to that container. After all, Jesse goes on existing even in those epochs where I am absent. The last time I appear, the final fading of my existence, will likely precede Jesse's death. After his heart gives out or he succumbs to the final stages of cancer, he will live on without me for a few moments or a few hours or a few days of coma and then he will die. Or. Just perhaps we might die together, Jesse and I, blown apart by a massive explosion. How romantic.